Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. When Julie and I uh, were preparing for marriage, we asked a particular couple to do our premarital counseling. This couple had nine children. Um, The dad told me once that, um, you know, at first they were overwhelmed at the thought of having a basketball team. Um, And then they made it to baseball. And he said, and then there were, they actually had a couple miscarriages along the way. He said, we almost got to soccer. The, uh, the kids were homeschooled, and for me and for Julie, they kind of broke every stereotype of what we would imagine homeschool kids to be. And, and I'm, I'm saying this as a homeschool father, right? Um, that they, they began, they homeschooled them through eighth grade, and then in ninth grade, they started sending the kids to this, the Christian school that Julie and I were teaching at. And each kid, as they came through, they were engaged in every way. They were more than prepared academically. They were uh, socially apt and quick. They, were, um, they participated in theater and in sports and athletics, and they were so well-rounded, and they were engaging. They were able to engage in meaningful conversation and discussion with people of all ages. At the same time, There were many flaws in these kids and in the parents themselves. But something that intrigued us about uh, the mom and dad is that they they never apologized uh, for brokenness in their kids, and they never tried to hide it. Um, They were authentic. But the factor that led us to ask them to do our premarital counseling was their family because their family said something about the parents, and we wanted to know what that was. This morning, we're going to discuss our third core value, family, surprise, surprise. We celebrate both the physical nuclear family as well as the spiritual global family of the church, the two of which we understand to be God's primary communities of disciple-making. Those are the two primary communities in which God forms His children into His image with more and deeper clarity. And I'm going to tell you to begin with your three secrets. So please, please keep this in confidence, okay? Number one, no nuclear family is perfect. Shh, Joni, keep that to yourself. This is private here. Here's the second secret, because I told you there'd be three. The second one, the global church is not perfect. Here's the third secret. No local church is perfect. But even in our imperfections, family is intended to point to our parents especially to God, who is the Father. 
Now, I'll be mentioning several different passages of Scripture during this teaching, but I'm going to start and anchor my thoughts in a short prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you don't have a hard copy Bible with with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one so you can follow along, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now with some copies. Just raise your hand. They'll be glad to give you one. If you do not own a copy and you would like to, then please just receive this one from us as a gift and take it with you. The letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus is called Ephesians. If you're not familiar with the Bible as a book, it's close to the end. But the easiest way to find it will probably be to look in the table of contents. And then turn to that page, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And again, as the text itself says, this is a way that Paul the Apostle, the one who wrote this letter, a way that he is praying for these Christians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Most of my focus is going to be on the first two verses of this passage, and I want to address the fact that Paul addresses this prayer to the Father. I know that many, many books, teaching sermons, podcasts, and even movies have been made that delve into the idea of the Father heart of God, and it's right that we expend so much effort to understand the implication that God has revealed Himself as Father. And in these first brief words… For this reason I kneel before the Father, Paul makes some important theological points. The first is in the term, I kneel, that verb. I realize it may seem obvious to us, it bears mentioning that Paul understood that he was in total subservience to the Father. He kneels before Him, a clear position of humility and self-denigration, while at the same time it projects honor to the one before whom he kneels. The Father is worthy of our entire submission. The second important word is the article, the. Now, you may say that's not an important word at all. Why would we focus on something so minor? But having lived now in Ohio for over two and a half years, I have learned that many of you, I I also was told I'm not supposed to say Ohioans, so that many of you Buckeyes take the word the very seriously in at least one specific context, the Ohio State University. I actually did a little research as to why that article was actually trademarked. 
I don't even know if you knew this. It was actually trademarked as part of the name of the Ohio State University. Why did the university do that? Why did they emphasize such an apparently insignificant word and actually trademark it as part of their official name? Because they wanted to preserve the uniqueness of their institution and not be confused with others that might share the same or similar abbreviations like OSU, which is Oklahoma State University. Not the, they're just Oklahoma State University. When Paul calls God the Father, he's acknowledging the absolute uniqueness of the fatherhood of God, that he is the only true and original father of humanity. He's the only source. There may be and are, as we know, lesser fathers, but God is the only one worthy of the article, the. Now listen to the second verse of the passage. I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Depending on the the translation that you are most um, familiar with, you may have seen this translated, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. But more recently, as more scholarship has been done on this passage, I'd say actually since the year about 2000, 2005, the more unanimous understanding is the way that the NIV, and at least in the 2011 edition, translates it, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So in the ancient Near East, one's name was one's identity. And even more important was an individual's father's name. The name of the father located that person's position in society, in history, and in influence. I'm not going to take time to read it now, but sometime when you have ah, 10 to 15 minutes, go back and read the story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath. As you approach the end of that account, King Saul asks a question repeatedly, and it's, it's as though it's this bee in his bonnet that he can't get rid of. And the question he keeps asking is, who is David's father? Whose son is this? So David has killed Goliath, he's defeated him, and he's a hero. Why would it be important whose son he is? Well, in that context, we can go back because he's the son of Jesse, who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and also because Jesse is part of the prophetic utterance of Isaiah that a a root, the root of Jesse would produce the heir who would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. A shoot would spring up from the stump of Jesse. So anyway, there's a lot of theology that goes into that question for King Saul, even though he didn't know it at the time, but we know it today. Whose son is this? Whose son is this? And why? Because the identity of a person was wrapped up entirely in the identity of their father. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, its identity from the fatherhood of God. So another way to put that is this, that the family as an institution, and I'm speaking both of the nuclear family and of the church, derives its meaning from God himself and his identity as father. And since God defines the concept of family, he holds the power over it. Something we miss also in English 
is the play on words that occurs in this phrase in the Greek. So the Greek word for father is pater, and the Greek word for family is patria, both of which you may have seen in different contexts. They both derive from the root word father. So Paul is saying, I kneel before the father from from whom every patria on earth derives its name. So even in the language and the appearance of the words on the page, Paul's illustrating the idea that family comes from, is defined by, and has its identity in God the Father. But I want to invite us into another passage written by Paul, but this time to the Christians in the region of Galatia. And we're moving now from from a focus on God as Father to that first family community that I mentioned earlier, which is the global church. But in speaking of the church, Paul in in Galatians makes an interesting and perhaps a little bit unusual statement. In chapter 4, verses 21 through 26, I'm going to read it, but I want to give you a little background first, not a lot, because it's complex. These verses are a little obscure because Paul's writing using an object lesson to show the Christians how different it would be if they were still under Old Testament law for salvation rather than under the grace of the cross. And he uses an illustration from one of their forebearers, Abraham, and Abraham's two sons. The one son that he had through his wife's slave, Hagar, the son Ishmael, and then the other son that he had through his wife, Sarah, and that son was Isaac. So, listen to what Paul writes here. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. So, Paul's acknowledging this is an analogy, okay? This is figurative. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. Now, listen to this next phrase. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above is the church. Now, I want to remind you, this is an analogy. Paul himself acknowledges this, but he In this analogy, he is comparing the global church to a mother. And I realize that idea might make some of us a little uncomfortable, but I don't think there's any need for that discomfort. It's a metaphor in the same way that the church is also described metaphorically as the bride of Christ. St. Cyprian of Carthage, a North African bishop of the third century, is famous for having written this, this statement, no one can have God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. And in this we see again the plan and identity of family in the heart of God. We also can then see some of the dysfunction perhaps 
in the way that we can so easily ignore the church and yet see ourselves directly attached to the Father. But the church is a family where God nurtures believers and makes them into disciples. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in this analogy, is that the church should fill that nurturing, caregiving role for the children of God. It's the community in which we bear one another's burdens, as we talked about when we were dealing with authenticity, and and, and in which we care for each other and generously help provide for one another's needs of all kinds. We need the Father. He is, after all, the Father. We also need the church. Back to the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, with which I opened. He closes that prayer with a benediction that's so well known, but it honors the church so highly. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, those are the the phrases that we always remember, to him that is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We like that part. The rest is great, but we forget it. To him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus, and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. It's important also to note, just as a sideline, that both Paul and the Apostle Peter, both in their writings, refer to something called the family of believers. Again, that's an analogy, but it shows their understanding of the relationality of the church, what that relationship looks like or should look like, and that is family. We must understand that Scripture elevates the church both as mother and as the family of God. Now let's talk about the nuclear family, because God designed the human nuclear family as well, and He did it to reveal more of His nature. At the beginning of time, we know the story. God brought the first man and the first woman together and formed the first human family. He then told them to multiply, to have children made in His image to fill the earth. And in this formation, God was stamping some of Himself and His identity onto humanity and into the world. Family is a universal human reality. It may be good, it may be bad. But each human being came from a union of a man and a woman, a father and a mother. I know that when we talk about nuclear family, that is a a place of so much pain for so many. I acknowledge that. Even as the family that or the couple, rather, that did our premarital counseling for me and Julie, there's a lot of brokenness in their family. And that continues to play out daily. But nonetheless, even in that brokenness, even in our brokenness, we point to the Father. And even as the Father heart of God forms the church. 
so too every family, every human family, derives its name. That means derives its, its definition and identity and meaning from the Father. Family is His conception. He invented it. He came up with it. He defines it. Another passage with which many of you are familiar, I know Pastor Sean, our pastor of marriage and family, has taught on this passage a number of times. And I would just like to let you know, I think it bears uh, mentioning that I had asked Pastor Sean to, to bring this sermon on family, but because of other commitments at this season, he was unable to do so. Deuteronomy chapter 6 illustrates an example of how God intends for the nuclear family to be a center of disciple-making. You've heard these verses before. Moses is, is reminding the people of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. He's reminding them of everything that God has revealed about himself, everything that he has commanded, everything that he has shown them. And he emphasizes the importance of families communicating these truths to their children because many of the children would not have witnessed them firsthand. So he's saying, you've got to pass on what you have seen and what you know. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey. I'm going to skip down to verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, celebrating the person, the work, and the power, and the holiness of God should be part of our daily activity within our nuclear families as well as within our church family. This, this passage is just one example of how the nuclear family is to be a unit of disciple-making. And even as the church nurtures and grows believers in the family of God, so the human family nurtures and grows children into believers and followers. As First Friends Church, we honor and value both. And we desire to uphold parents in their discipleship of their children. We support and protect the fight for the health of marriages because that marriage union forms the cradle for the well-being of the next generation. We also desire that our church community be a place where those who either have no nuclear family or who are estranged from their family of origin can find a spiritual family and be nurtured, loved, accepted, and discipled. Because the need to be in a loving, nurturing family is a universal human need. And this is why David in Psalm 68, 5 and 6, describes the father in this way, a father 
to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. God's concern for family is also on display in James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What do orphans and widows lack? Family. God desires of His family, the church, that we are aware of and reach out to and welcome into our family those who are bereft, those who are alone, those who lack. Now, given that the family is so integral to God's nature and to His plans for humanity, it's not really surprising that every aspect of family is under attack in, in, in the world and by our enemy. And you you know this, I don't need to rehearse it all, but motherhood is under attack with the world consistently devaluing mothers, devaluing motherhood, telling them that raising and discipling and nurturing children is not enough. Fatherhood is under attack, more and more fathers disappearing from the lives of their children, men avoiding more and more the responsibilities that come with fathering children, or simply men and women together choosing to not ever have children. Marriage itself is under attack, with fewer couples than ever, um, uh, or more couples than ever refusing to get married, and more and more marriages ending in divorce. The church's family is under attack in a number of ways. You know this, but I'm just going to mention two here. One way that we're under attack, or that the church is under attack, is that the value of the church or the importance of the church as a community, as family, has been devalued or is being devalued. So I alluded earlier that that we're all subject to the temptation to skip the church in our relationship with God. That it's somehow private. It's it's me and God, right? And, And He is Father to individual children. But He's also Father to the corporate church. Another analogy of the church is a body, right? And you've heard me use this, this analogy before, but it, we, are, we grow together up in maturity into the head, who is Christ, um, but we do so attached to one another. And um, how bizarre would a head look if every part of the body just grew directly out of the head? Um, in Brazil, one of the interesting incompetencies of the country is that uh, different regions run on different electrical grids with different voltages. And even within um, a normal Brazilian home, you would have two voltages, 110 and 220. Um, Some appliances require 220. Um, Most require 110, at least in our region. Um, But other regions that we would travel to sometimes, uh, the entire grid was 220. And we, I don't know how familiar you are with electrical current, but if you take an appliance or any electrical device that is intended to run on 110 volts and you plug it into a 220 volt outlet, poof ensues and you burn out the appliance immediately. So I don't know how many appliances we poofed um, when we would travel. 
Now, what you could also do is you could purchase a transformer, which was really clunky and very heavy. It was only about this big, but it was very heavy. And that transformer could be plugged into a 220 outlet, and then you could plug your 110 voltage devices into that transformer, and then you would be able to have them function as they should. Every analogy is imperfect, but I think this is an analogy that can help us grasp the importance of the church. The power is from God. The source is the Father. But it is through the church that that power is often communicated to and manifested in the body of Christ, believers. So, we need the church. And we have to understand that the church, it's, it's actually essential to God's plan for the world. It's not just a, an accidental side note. It's interesting how much we talk about family, we have to talk about ecclesiology. That means the study of the church. One other passage from Ephesians 3 that just shows the value and the role with which God has imbued us as the church. It's really very remarkable. Again, this is Paul writing. His intent, he's talking about God, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the church, God makes known his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's pretty remarkable. That's what we would say is high ecclesiology. We must not devalue the church as family. The second way that I'm, I'm just mentioning this morning, the church is under attack. Again, there are, there are others. But that we have been conditioned by our culture and our society to treat everything as a consumer good. And even though we don't want it to, that almost inevitably bleeds into our attitude and perspective of the church. Um, and so we, we come to view church a, a little bit like Burger King, where you can have it your way. Unless you want it to taste good, then you need to go somewhere else. <laughs> have it your way, right? Um, so we, we participate in, in the life of a church or in the context of a body. At least we consume it until it no longer pleases us, until we're like, ah, I'm not really getting what I want, and so I'll go over here. Or we mix and match a little bit here, a little bit there. We'll get, take some here, take some there. Um, and let me, let me be clear. There are, are good and right reasons um, to leave a local church and to join another. And that doesn't always have to be a great big deal, right? I'm not talking necessarily about times where the Holy Spirit leads us to join a different part of his body. But what I'm talking about is the attitude with which we may do that. Where it's just all about what I'm getting. 
And I think that's why one of the reasons that, quote, virtual church is so popular. There's a role for it. There's a reason why we stream our services. And the reason we stream is for those who are incapable. They're not able to be here. But we all know how convenient it can be. But also how wrong that thinking is. Because that is entirely a consumer approach. It's me, right? Because I'm not joining with anyone. I'm not sitting next to anybody. I'm in my convenience and my comfort, and I'm just getting what I need. I'm not giving anything back. I'm not contributing anything, even by my presence. So we forget that the church is a family, and at the same time is our spiritual mother, formed by our Father God, who has ordained that all His children be nurtured and grown and accepted and discipled within the context of His church. So let me suggest some steps maybe that that we can take in this regard. The first is we may need to change the way we think about the church. Um, Sometimes that's a call to action in and of itself where the Lord says, you need to change your thinking. You need to be renewed um, in your mind. And then repent of, maybe when we recognize a consumeristic attitude toward church within us, to repent of that. I mean, when you think of having a consumeristic attitude toward your physical nuclear family mother, that really kind of grates on us a little bit, right? Secondly, we may need to recommit to engaging with the community of the church, not just on Sunday mornings, but also in smaller communities, because one of the primary ways that God reveals Himself and His glory is through the church. So, this is a, a suggestion. This is not by any means um, manipulation. It's just an option and a suggestion. I think within a local church, we can hit two extremes. We can overemphasize membership and we can underemphasize membership. I think historically here at First French Church, maybe we've underemphasized it. And so there's been a question like, well, why, why do I, you know, I'm committed. I, I'm committed to church. Why do I need to be a member? Um, it's not exactly the same, but you can imagine, you know, maybe a man saying to a woman that he's dating is like, I'm committed to you. I, you know, why do I need to marry you? I'm committed. It's not exactly the same, and I get it. But there is, is an importance, I think, of affirming in a more formal manner a commitment to a local body. That this is where I am committed to both receiving and serving and giving, even as each member of the physical body both gives and receives from the fuller body. So that's just something to think about. We're actually, this next Sunday will be our last Sunday of the marriage, uh, marriage of the uh, membership class, and um, we have 22 people that are taking that class, and uh, there'll be another one um, next semester. So pray about that. Keep that as a possibility in your mind. Thirdly, um, this may seem really obvious, but we need to be far more serious in our zeal for strengthening, preserving, and encouraging the nuclear families that are part of our larger church family. Um, We need to not be so cavalier about marriages that break apart, about siblings that can't get along, and about our own attitudes maybe even toward our own nuclear families. Because God himself 
our Father, has defined and conceived a family through which He reveals Himself and in which He grows more of His disciples. Here's another potential action step on that last point. Pastor Gabriel announced the marriage retreat that's coming up next weekend. I know it's kind of last minute. This is the, the last day that they're accepting registrations, but if you're married and maybe it's been a question of inconvenience or maybe you've kind of thought, oh, I've been to those before and uh, I don't think there's anything new for me there, just encourage you to, to maybe revisit that question. Maybe that's a step that, that you can take not only to, to strengthening your, your own marriage if you're married, but maybe even your presence there might have an impact on someone else or another couple that's attending. So again, something to think about. And this morning, I want to invite all of us to a family meal. Um, it's the communion table. God the Father is present, ministers to us through the sacrifice and death of His Son by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's interesting that one of the ways that God ordained that His family worship Him is through this symbolic meal. And, and so much of family involves eating together. Remember Ben Crossan? I think you remember him. He's kind of hard to forget if you've ever met him. Pastor Ben. And I love the way that he made a, a verb out of a noun. And he said, I love to table with people. Do you like tabling? I love tabling. And that's reflected for us in Scripture as we table with one another, with God our Father, as the church, with one another. Even the term that we use to describe the Lord's table, communion, comes from the two roots of co, meaning together, and union. A communion, so a unity with Christ in His sacrifice and resurrection, and a union with one another as family within the church because we are drawn together and unified in Christ Jesus to the glory of the Father. So I'd invite those that are serving communion this morning to come to their tables at this point, to the table at which you're serving. And I invite the rest of us to take about 30 seconds to be in silence, to contemplate what God is saying to you by His Spirit in this moment, to examine your hearts, allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts so that as we gather at this family table, our hearts are clear before God and our hearts are clear before our brothers and sisters. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.